Day Connects, Ireland's podcast for informed corporate counsel. Welcome to our second episode of the RDJ Connects podcast series for corporate counsel. Today, we're recording our podcast remotely given the extraordinary times that we live in. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Sean O'Reilly. Sean is a partner in the corporate commercial department of Ronan Daily German. Today, myself and Sean are going to discuss the formalities associated with executing Irish law documents. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Ashling. Thanks very much. This topic, I believe, is of good interest given um, the times that we find ourselves in, and especially in the context of the requirement for more and more remote signings and completions. Absolutely. Execution can be uh, difficult even at the best of times, and, and we're certainly not in the best of times at the moment. Firstly, going back to basics, can you advise us as to the main differences between executing documents under hand and under seal? I prefer to distinguish between executing under hand and executing as a deed. So for certain categories of document, it is necessary for them to be executed as a deed. And with execution as a deed comes particular formalities around their execution that wouldn't apply for other documents and those other documents we would say are, are executed underhand. So where is it necessary to execute as a deed? I broadly break it into three categories of document. The first is there are certain types of document which by law it is necessary to execute as a deed, principally these are concerned with conveying or creating an interest in land. So, you know, one will be familiar with the concept that you might sign a contract for sale to buy your house, but the actual document that transfers the interest is, is the deed, and that document is executed as a deed. Secondly, where the promises in the document are not supported by consideration, so where the parties are not exchanging benefits and disbenefits for the promises that are made, there is an exception to the requirement for consideration to create a valid contract where one executes as a deed. And then thirdly, where one wants the benefit of a longer limitation period in respect of the promises in the document. So a simple contract, a non-deed, you have a six-year limitation period, and for a deed, you have the benefit of a of a twelve a twelve-year limitation period. So those are the kind of three circumstances in which one would execute as a deed. And then, if you're required to execute as a deed, you must comply with the formalities for same, which are now set out in Section sixty-four of the Land and Conveyancing Law Reform Act of two thousand nine. And I suppose that then breaks the requirements down broadly into, into three requirements. Number one, the document must be appropriately labelled using a term like assign, assignment, uh, conveyance, or any other label that uh, makes clear its intention to take effect as a deed. So typically what we would do is in what's called the, the testimonium clause, the piece of the contract that begins in witness of which, which is usually pretty close to the signature blocks, 
we might put in that the document is to enter into and deliver it as a deed. And then in the signature block itself, we would talk about the person signing and, and delivering as a deed. Then the second requirement is that you must comply with the relevant formality for actually signing the document, which is set out in section 64. So for an individual, there's a requirement that their signature be witnessed. For an Irish registered company, it executes deeds under its common seal. And then for Irish legal entities that aren't companies and for foreign legal entities, they execute in accordance with the relevant uh, legal execution formalities that apply to them. So in the case of a foreign, if you're dealing with an English company, that English company must execute a deed in accordance with the formalities for executing a deed under English law. And then the third requirement is the document must be delivered. So you must deliver your document as a deed. And as I've said, typically delivery will be cited in the testimonium and or in the signature block and, and delivery cannot take place before the document is signed, but can take place contem contemporaneously with or any time after the document is signed. That's very helpful, Sean. That's very, very clear and um, comprehensive. Just in relation to physically affixing the seal in the case of Irish companies where you're um, assigning a document as a deed, mm -hmm. um, who should generally be witnessing the, the affixing of the common seal of the company? So this is a, a common issue. The answer is it's dependent upon the constitution of the company. The default position under Section 43 of the Companies Act 2014 is that the seal should only be used with the authority of the board or a committee thereof. So the first requirement is to pass a board resolution authorising the execution of the document under seal. And then section 43 is quite generous in that it provides that a, a seal is to be signed by a director or other person authorised by the board and countersigned by uh, another director, a secretary, or another person authorised by the board. But in company constitutions, you can see variations on that. Infrequently, I've sometimes seen the sealing requirement with a single signatory. So it might say the seal is to be signed by one director or by one authorised representative of the board. The more common formulation is either the uh, constitution is silent, in which case it applies section 43, or, and it's something that you, if your company did not update its constitution when the Companies Act 2014 came into force, the constitution would still contain the former model regulation 115 of Table A of the Companies Act 1963. And what that did was it implied into a company's articles of association a requirement that the seal be signed and countersigned by one director plus either another director or the secretary or a person authorised by the board. But the key difference between Model Reg 115 and Section 43 was that it always required at least one director to sign. 
And what, um, if you have a situation where the requirement under your constitution is that you need either two directors um, or a director and secretary to, to, to witness the affixing of the seal and, and you've only one director available to you and that may be a common issue in these strange times, have you any thoughts on, on how you could get around that issue? I suppose in the, fir- in the first instance, look at your signature block and does it use language like given under the common seal in the presence of? It possibly isn't essential that it say in the presence of. And in those circumstances, you could perhaps seal the document, pass it to the director to sign and then send it on separately to the secretary to countersign. Sure. The other way around it that we've seen utilised in the current climate is by way of power of attorney. So Section 41 of the Companies Act provides that a deed executed under power of attorney on behalf of a company is to have the same effect as if it was executed under the company's common seal. And previously, this wasn't a helpful workaround under the old Companies Act regime because there was a convention that powers of attorney themselves were granted under seal. That arose because of a provision of the 1963 Act that said that where a power of attorney was to be used outside of the state, it needed to be given under seal. And then there was just a convention that all powers of attorney, whether inside or outside of the state, were were given under seal. But the Powers of Attorney Act itself provides that an attorney need not be executed under seal unless there's some other legal requirement for that. And the requirement for a attorney to be under seal for use abroad was not carried over into the Companies Act 2014. So what we are seeing companies doing is they will pass a board resolution authorising the appointment of an attorney to execute a deed on their behalf. That attorney could be one of the directors and one of the directors will then sign the power of attorney appointing that person. And then that person will execute the document as a deed under the power of attorney. And when they're executing, they don't affix the seal. That's a sometimes common mistake. So the attorney doesn't affix the seal and sign it. In fact, he has no authority to do that. He signs in his own name and has his signature witnessed as if he were executing a deed, but he would be expressed to be doing it in the name of the company. That's, that's a very useful um, workaround, Sean. Thanks for that. You mentioned witnesses earlier in the context of um, both signing documents under hand and signing deeds. Just a question I've come across a number of times is whether there's a requirement that the witness needs to be independent of the signatory. It's a convention that the person would be independent. The reason for that is that in the event that there were ever proceedings concerning whether or not that was my signature or the document was executed. You want someone who will give, you know, unbiased evidence as to your execution of the document. But it isn't a legal requirement that the the witness be independent of the signatory. And certainly in the circumstances in which we're finding ourselves, it is not unusual I would say for a member of the household to be deputised as a witness to witness execution. One caveat to that is that there is a common law rule to the effect that where you have parties to a deed, one of the parties cannot act as witness to the signature of another party to the deed. So if you and I entered into a deed with, say, transferring property between us, 
you shouldn't witness my signature and I shouldn't witness yours. We should each have our own witness. So in summary, there's no statutory requirement as such preventing somebody who's not as such independent to you um, witnessing your signature. But but if that same person is, is also signing the document in another capacity, you want to make sure that person doesn't witness your signature. That's correct. Now, just w- moving on to kind of the topical subject of, I suppose, remote signings, given that we're all, um, we're all working from home and remote working is being undertaken across the board. What do you see as the kind of practical considerations which need to be taken into account when facilitating remote execution of both contracts that are signed underhand and and deeds. So helpfully, um, the the Law Society of Ireland have produced a a guidance note on on virtual exchange of of documents that arose out of, um, I suppose, a, a controversy in the UK back in 2008, a, a case called Mercury concerning the use of pre-signed signature pages. Uh, and that m- kind of motivated both here and in the, in the UK, a, a production of guidance around remote execution of documents. So I suppose in the first instance, if someone, you know, returns a completed PDF of a, of a document with the signature in the document that should be as long as the parties are agreeable um, a sufficient way of of proceeding with a virtual exchange typically on the understanding and you would ask each party to commit to that that originals will follow as soon as possible however the law society permits kind of three variations on that largely because it's not always feasible particularly with large documents to expect someone to print, you know, a 100 page agreement, sign it and then scan back all 100 sure. pages. So the, the Law Society have kind of three variations. So number one, and the only option which is permissible where the document is executed as a deed is the signatories issued with the execution version of the document. And you might, but you don't have to extract the signature page and attach that to the same mail. They're then asked to return the entire executed document and the signature page. And usually they will be in your cover mail or you will ask them to send a mail back to you authorising the signature page to be attached to the execution version and authorising the delivery and dating of the document. But typically you would build that into your cover mail. So you would say, you know, by return of this document, you are deemed to authorise, et cetera, et cetera. So that's option one. And the Law Society, sorry, have a precedent um, letter and of authority as part of their guidance note. Option two, where the contract isn't a deed, the Law Society say that it should be permissible for the person to receive the execution version of the document and to send back just a signature page. Personally, I, I have a dislike to that in that I, I like, I'm sorry, with an authority to, to attach it to the execution version. Personally, I think that it isn't that much different to option one. It's not asking that much more of someone to send back the execution version. Yeah. And that way, everyone's completely certain about what version of the document you're expected to attach the signature page to. Finally, the Law Society guidance note provides for limited circumstances in which pre-signing of signature pages will be acceptable. And this is never acceptable for a deed. 
And that is where the individual is given the execution page, signs and returns it to be held pending receipt of execution versions. The individual is then sent the execution version when the document negotiations are complete and it is finalised. And they're then asked to confirm that the page that they've already signed can be attached to the final execution version. To be honest, I see very little use of that in practice. Generally speaking, where there's a contemplation that a person will need to execute documents for a transaction and they're not going to be around because of holidays or or personal circumstances, they would usually be asked to sign a power of attorney nominating someone else in the organization that they trust to act on their behalf and execute the final versions of the documents themselves. That allows everyone to progress with negotiating the documents. And when they're in final form, the attorney is in a position to execute them on behalf of that person. Yeah, no, agreed. And and what can happen too is that they may sign one version and, and you know, there may have been changes and, and then they're not available Completely. to sign. So as, as you say, the power Completely. of attorney is, is the, better, the better way to Absolutely. go. Absolutely. And, and, and that, those approaches generally relate to kind of wet ink executions. What about a yes. situation where the signatory wishes to use an e-signature? Yeah, so I suppose if, as Irish lawyers, e-signature hasn't been front and centre in our practice, but there's a sense that with the circumstances in which we found ourselves and with you know social distancing to continue for some time, that we're going to see e-signatures starting to become more prominent. At an Irish and an EU level, their use is facilitated in Ireland with the E-Commerce Act of 2000 and at an EU level with, with what's called the EIDAS regulation. And the E-Commerce Act provides that, you know, a contract is not to be denied effect and is not unenforceable by reason only of it being executed electronically and that the rules of evidence are not to preclude admission of a document solely on the basis that it's been executed electronically. The key requirement under the E-Commerce Act is consent. So per section 13 of the Act, you know, a person cannot be forced to accept an electronic signature. So it should be by consent. Now, that consent might be implied, given that, let's say, both parties sign the document electronically, but it's probably no harm to state in your document the explicit consent of each party to being executed electronically, so that there's no doubt later. And then, I suppose, we we use the label electronic signature, but both pieces of legislation contemplate different types of electronic signature. So, the Irish legislation contemplates two types. We have a simple electronic signature and an advanced electronic signature accompanied by what's called a qualifying certificate. So a simple electronic signature is is just, you know, data in electronic form that's associated with with other electronic data and has the intention of, of authenticating the originator of the document. There's a similar with slightly different emphasis in the EIDAS instead of talking about authenticating the document that talks about the signature being with the the intention to sign the document. But there isn't a tremendous amount of formality with with those, it seems, on, on the face of the legislation. The advanced electronic signature is more onerous as it requires something that's uniquely linked to the signatory 
and that allows amendments or changes to the document to be kind of tracked and tracked back to the signatory. And it seems that what that requires is almost some level of encryption and a kind of some level of access that's unique to the signatory so that, you know, the signatory's fingerprint is is on the document. And then it must be certified by a, a third party qualified certifier. And similarly, the EIDS, they have your simple signature, your advanced, and then they also have what's called a qualified signature. And a qualified signature under the EIDS seems even more onerous than our advanced signature because it requires that you use a particular type of device in order to, to affix the signature. What I would say, and, and that again, the Law Society have produced a guidance document on it. Anecdotally, the more advanced forms of electronic signature haven't really taken off. And that really, yeah. when we're talking about electronic signatures in practice, it tends to be the, the simple electronic signature. Sure. Um, a common law too, you know, there is a case in the UK from 2006, Meta v. Pereira Fernandez, where the, the High Court there suggested, without reference to the e-commerce legislation, that the simple act of typing your name at the end of an email or inputting your signature into an email could qualify as a signature as long as it was uh, intended to authenticate the document. So. You know, for the for the simple electronic signature, it's probably not an onerous requirement, but I would say it would largely depend on the formality of the document. And if it's a formal contract, then I would suggest that it would be better to use a professional provider of electronic signatures rather than relying on just, you know, typing one's name into it as, as constituting a signature. It seems to me that you could potentially sign documents, um, certain documents that only need to be signed underhand by way of electronic or a simple electronic signature. And as you say, you need to assess whether you need to get um, a professional service provider involved. But are there documents that you would recommend never using an electronic signature for be it a simple one or an advanced electronic signature. So I suppose we could we could break that down into two categories of document, Ashling. So under the e-commerce act, there are a series of document types for which its provisions do not apply. So it says that they're without prejudice to the rules on the execution of those documents. And there, you know, include wills and codicils, enduring power of attorney, documentation relating to the rules of court, statutory declarations and affidavits, and instruments for the creation, acquisition, disposal or registration of an interest in land. For example, going back to our discussion earlier, you know, an instrument to transfer a property or a lease, it includes leasehold interests. It would not be possible to execute those, or it seems, by electronic signature. Now, the, there is an exception for interest in land where it's a contract for the creation as distinct from the actual instrument. So that would seem to suggest that, for example, in a, in a conveyancing transaction, one could execute the contract for sale with a simple electronic signature, but one could not execute the deed with a simple electronic signature. Okay. And then there are documents, as you've said, where it just wouldn't really be appropriate or workable by electronic signature. So the EIDAS regulations contemplate what are called electronic seals, 
but we don't really have the concept of electronic seals here in Ireland. So if I've affixed the company seal to a document, it is the piece of paper to which I've affixed the seal that one should sign or countersign. There isn't a ready way of it, of putting an electronic signature to that. Now, in the power of attorney example that I gave earlier, it, it possibly still is workable as an electronic signature. The difficulty that you run into is is witnessing. Again, in kind of a, a regular circumstance where I sign a document and you're in the same room as I am and you see me sign the paper document and then you sign underneath my signature, that's straightforward. Where documents are being executed electronically, we've, we've sometimes been asked the question, well, you know, can I also witness electronically? So you push uh, your signature in electronically and then the witness puts their signature in electronically. And there is common law authority for the view that a witness still needs to be physically present when someone executes a document. So if I execute, uh, put in my electronic signature, the logic is that you would need to nearly be in, in the same room watching me click the button to put in my electronic signature and then either you do the same or you print off my signature and, and countersign it uh, your, yourself as a witness. There is a provision in the Commerce Act which, which suggests documents which needed to be witnessed could be done by advanced electronic signature with a qualifying certificate by both the signatory and the witness. But again, anecdotally, there's no there's no suggestion that there's been any great take up on that. Sure. So documents that are deeds where the signature needs to be witnessed or where they're executed under seal, particularly the seal, don't, don't necessarily lend themselves to an electronic signature. And also, I suppose we here in Ireland aren't particularly familiar with the use of electronic signature. It's not something that we do day in, day out, like um, wedding signatures. So no, I could see no. issues, you know, say for conveyancers um, or sole practitioners, if they had to review whether an electronic signature was valid or or not. And, and, and I assume their their preference would be to, um, you know, have a wedding signature, be it on a contract or on a deed. Completely. We're, we're not, you know, um, I think we're not there yet. It's, it's certainly something you do see, though, with cross-border transactions, certainly in the US. They seem to be much more comfortable executing in that way. We just don't have the familiarity with it yet to, to be there. Yeah. As we've alluded to, or, or certainly you've alluded to um, during the course of the podcast, it's critical that you comply with the correct execution formalities to ensure that the document that you've executed is validly executed. In your experience, what are the likely consequences where a document is not executed correctly? I suppose you put your finger on the, on the key one there, Ashton, you immediately get a question as to the validity and binding effect of the document. So that when you go to enforce that document, you may A, find that it's not readily enforceable and B, you may find yourself needed to engage in litigation, expensive litigation in order to confirm that it is. There is authority for the view that where a document uh, is expressed as a deed, but it's not correctly executed as a deed, it may still take effect as a, as a simple contract, as a, a non-deed. But of course, that won't be of any help in those transactions where, as a matter of law, they have to be executed as a deed or where there's no consideration in your agreement that then you've got an unenforceable contract. But the, the principal issues are invalidity ultimately, and 
it becoming expensive potentially to get to that process where you find out whether it's valid or not. Whereas if your document is correctly executed, you know, there can be no argument then at that point. Uh, and the party now moves to, to enforcing and, uh, and acting on the document. Well, Sean, that was really, really helpful. Thank you very much for joining me and discussing um, the formalities surrounding execution. I'm hoping that everyone got a lot out of that. I certainly did. And many thanks. Thanks very much, Ashling. Thank you. You've been listening to RDJ Connects, Ireland's podcast for informed corporate counsel. The information provided in this episode was correct at the time of recording. However, we recommend consulting your regular RDJ advisor to ensure no changes have occurred since then. Alternatively, you can contact us via our website, rdj.ie. We're here to help. Thank you.